Hello, you're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim on Tuesday, May 7th, 2019. If you're listening on a different day, well, then this show is being rebroadcast. Hi, I'm your host, Greg McKim. You may be wondering about the show name, Home Talk. My advice, if your home is talking to you, saying things like, I need a new roof or please remodel me, you might want to either see a psychiatrist or get a second opinion. And that's where I might come in because just because your home thinks it needs a new roof, maybe it really doesn't. Maybe it needs some patchwork. So on the show, I talk about just about anything and everything related to owning a home, from buying, selling, and financing a home, maintenance, remodeling, new construction, rental properties, and flipping homes. If it's related to a house, we talk about it. I've worked in the industry in some fashion since the late 1970s, everything from swinging a hammer, pouring concrete, digging foundations, owning a mortgage company, I'm currently a licensed real estate broker with Rockwell Realty and a licensed loan originator with Loanzilla, which is a mortgage broker here right in Kirkland. My loan originator license is 106202, and the Loanzilla license is 67412. My primary goal for this show, show is to use my knowledge and experience to help people make good financial decisions about buying and selling homes. There's other shows like this, but I think you might find mine a little unique, and that's because I discuss things about the mortgage and real estate industry I don't find other people sharing with the general public. That doesn't mean nobody does it, but I haven't found them. Of course, I don't claim to know everything, and I periodically have guests, but today it's just going to be me and my friend Alan Greenspan. You might have heard of him. Alan, welcome to the show. Oh, great to be here, Greg. It's nice to be in sunny Seattle. Well, I couldn't get Alan. Sorry about that. So instead, I have uh, Ben Bernanke sitting in for Alan today. Um, Ben, can you say hello to the audience? Okay, you guys, it's just me today. No guests other than my esteemed producer, Eric. Thanks for being here, Eric. Otherwise, I'd be a little lonely. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, next week, maybe I can get Alan to come fly over from wherever he's vacationing now. Or maybe Ben or some (laughs) some of those other guys from the... Previously from the Fed. So for for reference, if you'd like to call in and chat with me or Ben or Alan today, the number for dialing the station is 425-373-5527. Again, that is 425-373-5527. You can reach me off air at 206-250-6545. That's my mobile. So no crank calls, okay? 206 250 6545, feel free to email me at gmckim, that's G-M-C-K-I-M, at lonezilla.com, or visit lonezilla.com. You can also listen to this or prior shows by podcast at 1150-K-K-N-W. Again, that's 1150-K-K-N-W under audio archives. So today, what I'm going to be talking about are loan closing costs. I have been in the mortgage business business for 28 years, and quite often people ask me, why am I paying all these things? What is this? Why? What is this for? So we're going to talk about that. But before, we're going to do a little bit of real estate and mortgage news. People often want to want, often wonder and ask me, what are interest rates doing? What are interest rates going to do? And I tell them, if I could tell you for sure, then I would be doing my radio show from an island that I own called Oahu. 
because I would have enough money to buy it, and everybody lives on it, and I, I would be a, I would be a great, a, a very nice uh, landlord to everybody there. But I don't know exactly what rates are going to do. So I look and I research and I, I, I get other people's opinions. For instance, I have an article today from a publication that I subscribe to called Mortgage Professional Association Magazine, and this was published today, so I will just read most of it for you. After four weeks of consecutive increases, fixed-rate mortgages finally declined last week. Data from Freddie Mac's primary survey revealed that the 30-year mortgage dropped about a half percent from, the, from um, May 2nd, and it's down about that much from the same time last year. The 15-year dropped a little bit, too, by about, oh, another, about a half percent. And then arms dropped a little bit. Most people don't pay attention to arms that much these days. This is due to slightly weaker inflation and labor uh, um, news, which kind of surprised me, actually. Because if you follow the economic news, like I do, last week we had labor news saying that we had the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. And to me, that's a tightening of the labor market. So I'm a little confused. So, um, and, and sometimes when you get an expert's opinion, they'll have a different take on something as to why they think the labor news is weak because there's all kinds of parsing you can do about economic news. Um, the one thing that is really unsettling both the stock and uh, uh, bond markets recently is what's going to happen with China? We don't know. So if you hear news that we're going to have a big trade war with China, you can probably count on interest rates dropping. Why? Because that's called flight to security, flight to safety. Interest rates are, are, are bonds that's, that, that, that fund interest rates, a little bit more of a secure investment than stocks. And if you see the stock market drop, usually you'll see interest rates drop. Now, people say, well, why is that? I'll give you a, just a quick overview of how interest rates work. When a person purchases a, a mortgage-backed security or a bond, that bond has what's called a, a face value, and it has a yield. When there's demand for bonds, the yield increases, and, and, and that drives the rate down, which is typically sometimes called the face value. It's, that's, that's a little bit of a, inaccurate, but I don't want to get too wonky on you. So think about this. If, if there's a demand for stocks, the price goes up, right? If there's a demand for bonds, everybody wants them, the price goes up. When the, when the bonds prices go up, the rate itself falls because the yield is inverse to the price. And I actually screwed it up when I first started talking. The yield overall, when the price goes up, the yield drops, which means that the interest rate itself goes down, but the price went up. So I know that's about as, as clear as mud. So if anybody wants to ever sit down with me and talk about it, I can show you. Um, but the bottom line is when there's a demand for bonds, the actual rates go down and the price goes up. Okay. Now, the, um, the, um, the, the way that that's passed on to the consumer is that the overall cost of a loan goes down for you. I'll give you an example. I have some rate sheets here from one of the lenders I deal with all the time. And we had um, roughly the, um, in, in January, end of January, the, and then we walked walk through a couple months, we had a low of, of the price of a loan the low hit on um, March 26th. Well, it could have been the 27th or 25th, but I only took a snapshot of every month. And it's up about an eighth since then. And overall, since January, rates themselves have fluctuated about a quarter percent. It's not a big deal one way or the other. Now, if you've listened to my show before, I tell you don't, don't pay attention to interest rates. Pay attention to how much a rate costs. 
because the interest rates themselves don't really change. The, what, what changes is, again, the price of the rate. And the more expensive the rate is, that means there's less demand for the bond. So the price of the rate, the, the, I, I am really screwing up today. Because these things are, 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 are non, they're, they're, they, they, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not intuitive. So if there's huge demand for bonds, the price of, of, the, um, of, the, of, the, of the rate goes down because the yield went up. I, I, think I, backed, I think I said this three different ways, Eric, haven't I? So I'm going to stop right now before I get myself dug in a bigger hole. And if anybody wants me to go through this with them and I'm not so mucky-headed, I will do it with you. But the bottom line is, is that there hasn't been a big change in rates overall or the cost of a loan or cost of a rate for about for a few months. So now if you're looking to buy a house, you're looking to refinance a house, the question again is, what's going to happen in the future? Some people think we're going to have about a drop in a quarter percent rate over the summer, and that's not much. Here's what I generally tell people. If you're buying a house and you're closing the next 30 to 45 days, lock. Here's why. Economic news comes out and it drives the cost of loans up. It happens really fast and it's just almost impossible to get it back because the way that lenders and bond investors operate is they operate on fear more than they do on optimism. So when they think things are going bad, they start dumping their bonds and the price of the loan goes up. And then it takes a slow, slow erosion to get it back to where it was. I'll give you an example. 2003, working with a lot of my clients, all of a sudden we had an economic turn and the cost of a particular rate went up a half percent a day, half percent a day, half percent a day for a month straight. It evened out a little bit, but some people who waited, hoping it would get better, if, you, if it costs you 3 to 4% more for a given interest rate and you have a $400,000 loan, that's $10,000, $15,000. And I tell people, if you're going to lock, if, you have, if you're buying a house, lock now unless you can, your loan originator can give you convincing evidence that they think that we're in a long downward trend right now and there's economic news to provide and there isn't right now. If you're refinancing, you can play with it a little bit because it doesn't matter that much. But just keep in mind that economic news, if it starts to, if, if the economy starts to heat up and, 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 and the cost of a loan starts to go up, it'll take a long, it takes longer for it to come down than it does for it to, to go up. All right, enough of that. Beat that to death. So let's talk a little bit about, um, and I'm really embarrassed. Back When I come back next week, I'm going to make sure I get my story straight on how yields and prices work because I do know. I just right now I'm not being clear-headed. Housing market. So I got an article here from the Seattle Times. It's a pretty good one. came out this morning. If you want to look it up, it's by Paul Roberts. He's a Seattle Times business reporter, so it's in today's Times. That's the 7th. And it's titled, what's the title of this one? Oh, shoot. Oh, home buyers get some good news. That's the, that's, so here's what he talked about. Okay. So April's median price for King County single-family home dipped to 690 bucks, 690000 Okay, $690,000 which is down 4.8% from last April. Now, 690000 still a lot of money, but it, it, it's down, okay? That's the latest data from the, more, uh, the, the Northwest Multiple Listing Service. And in Snohomish County, it fell about 1.2% to 500000 The decline was more dramatic in the condo market. For instance, in King County, the median price for a condo fell 5 point, I mean, excuse me, 9.6% down to about 404000 Now, I'm looking at these charts and things in front of me on this report. So King County condo price is down 9%. 
East side, virtually flat. They're up 0.7. North King County down roughly 3. Southwest and southeast King County were up. Southwest was up 11, and southeast was up 6. Now, this is the pattern we've been seeing the last few months. People have been pushed out from the core because they can't afford it, and so they out, even though the whole of King County, you see housing prices drop. You're not seeing it in the, in, the, in the periphery because that's where people can afford it, and that's what I'm experiencing too. When I have my clients go out and make offers on homes in the periphery, we're in more bidding wars and we're having more homes sell over list price than we are in the core areas. So that was the condos. Um, let's go to single-family homes. I won't read. Um, I won't read every single line of this, but go back to the charts. So the the single-family homes in um, Seattle were down eight percent April over April, two percent in um, East Side. That's Bellevue, Kirkland, Redmond. About four in North King County, which would be you know Bothell, uh, Kirkland, maybe uh, uh, Shoreline, and then again in Southwest and South King Southeast King County. Uh, well, Southwest was up four, but Southeast was down two. So that was a little bit different than the condo market. So overall, let's give me, let me give me some of my own story. So I'm out showing homes to people and just closed one last week where we got it for about five, 6,000, I can't remember exactly, under list price. And then another one where we just got into contract last Thursday, and this is up in Mill Creek. We looked at maybe a dozen homes. Most of the homes sold within four or five days, went pending, Within four or five days, be on the market. But we found one that was listed for five fifteen. We offered five hundred five, and we got it for five ten. So it's kind of hit and miss that way. A year or so, maybe two years ago, almost any house that you were competing on, you would you would have multiple offers, and you would go over list price. Incidentally, the one that we got for five five ten, we were the only people offering, which helps always. So that's a little bit about what's going on in the real estate market. It's a wait and see for me. I think we're probably leveled out a little bit, and this, these, these, these numbers seem to, seem to indicate that. So before I get into the um, all-alone closing costs and why you pay them and who you're paying them to and what your options are, I want to talk a little bit about what I call mortgage tips and real estate tips. Mortgage tips. Number one, if you're out looking to buy a house, start your loan shopping before you make an offer because once you make the offer, you only have, per the contract, unless you strike that out and change it, which probably not advisable because it makes sellers nervous, but the contract says that within five business days of becoming, uh, getting into mutual acceptance, you got to make one application and you can't change who you're going to work with after the fifth day without seller written permission. Now, the seller could let, give you that permission, but why would you want to give them that kind of control over your decision-making process? So that's the first reason. You want to have this settled before you're in contract so you don't have to rush around and then be forced into working with someone that perhaps you didn't want to. Second is that buying a house is a stressful pro uh, uh, um, process, and so is getting a loan. So if you can get part of it out of the way in advance, it helps. As soon as you get into the, into the process of making an offer and doing inspections and so forth, there's a lot of things going on in your life on top of your normal everyday you know, tasks and sleeping and eating and taking kids to school and stuff. So I say shop early. You've heard me say this before, but I would I would t pick about three lenders. Somebody's referred to you. Maybe go online, look around, get quotes from all of them. And I have a whole podcast on how to get quotes. We'll touch on a little bit today. And I think that podcast was called How to Shop for a Home Loan. It was back like in um, January sometime. Look it up on the website, on the archives. Shop early. And then a couple quick tips that I want to bring up because I just went through this a couple of people. Do not use the annual percentage rate. 
It's it's a misleading, inaccurate, and it's it it should be it should be illegal. Don't use it. You ever want me to show it to you? I'll show you why it's mathematically flawed. And second is don't shop for interest rates. This is third actually. Don't shop for interest rates. Pick an interest rate and shop for fees. Now I have a whole method for doing that for my clients. If you ever want me to help you do it, I'll do it. And it's a very simple thing to do. So I'll give you an example. One of my clients who's buying a house, and he ended up using me for a loan too. I gave him the template, which he emailed to U.S. Bank and to Bank of America, exactly how I told him to do it. And then we compared everything, and I beat those two by a couple hundred bucks. It wasn't much, but he wanted to stick with me because he already knows me. He's worked with me before, and it's all in one. He doesn't have to go someplace else. He's doing the house, buying the house, and getting the loan through me. Now, here's an interesting thing. When you ask people for rate quotes, this is the problem. If you ask that question, then you get all kinds of different answers, and it's really hard to make comparisons. One of them will quote you four. One of them will quote you four and a quarter. One of them will quote you three and three quarters, different fees. You want to you you have only one variable, and that is the fees. That's it. You don't want to have different rates. You don't want to have different lock periods, blah, blah, blah. And interestingly enough, even though I had a template that my client sent to Bank of America, they still quoted the wrong rate, which we had to go back and ask to do it again. That happens all the time. People don't read things, I guess. Real estate tips. This is a real common mistake people make. They say, well, how do I, they, they're, they're, they're evaluating what they think a home is worth, whether they're going to list it or they're going to buy it. And they say, well, I went to this website and I looked at these homes and they all sold for $250 per foot. And then they say, let's take this house and multiply it by $250. doesn't work. It doesn't work. Think about this for a second. You got one ho- two homes that are identical, sitting side by side, really, really similar. One of them's 3,300 feet and one of them's 3,350 feet. It doesn't cost $250 per foot to build 50 more square feet of house. And appraisers don't use that number. They use a number in the $40 to $50 range because of how that works. So don't use the price per foot to compare homes. It doesn't work for other reasons, but that's the main one. But other reasons can be just all you have to have is just a slight quality difference between the homes, a slight neighborhood difference, slight view, and it completely skews everything. And it's really hard for these algorithms with all these automated evaluation services out there that you've heard of, like Zillow and, and Trulia. And, and they're, 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 they, they really have a hard time equating and accounting for that stuff. In fact, I'll look at what's called an automated value model from five different places, and I'll see as much, like say on a $500,000 home, I'll see as much as a $50,000 swing on those things. Really hard. Um, let's see. Here's a little story. I like this one. So... You might have heard me before when I did my, my show on how to list a home. I was emphatic about several things if you're listing a home. One, if it pay for an inspection, give it to the buyers, and in advance, do everything you can and say, I'm not doing these things. The, here's, here's what you want as a seller of a home. You want to have the, the highest price possible with the least amount of contingencies for the buyer. Because every contingency a buyer has gives them an opportunity to do one of two things. One is to back out, or two is to renegotiate with you. So you, want, you don't want to have the opportunity, the opportunity at the same time. You want the buyer to feel safe. You want the buyer to be wanting to make an offer on your home. Let's just pretend you had, and I'm going to tell you the story after I rant about this for a second, okay? So let's say you had a house for sale, and you had 10 potential buyers. But three of them have already made offers on other homes, and they've done a pre-inspection on those homes, which means they've already spent $400 to $500. Maybe they've done it on two or three homes. They're sick of it. So they just say, I'm walking from this house. I don't want to do any more pre-inspections. So now you're down to seven buyers. Then you got 
two buyers that just no way they're going to waive their inspection because the other five maybe want to, but two don't want to because they just don't want to take the risk. So now you're down from 10 to five buyers, and they're competing with each other. Wouldn't you rather have 10 people compete? Make the entry barriers non-existent for the buyer. That helps you get more offers, more competition, potentially higher price. Also, again, back to they don't have a way to back out or renegotiate with you. The second thing that you want to always do is ha- if, if you own any sort of a, 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 of a HOA, whether it's a condo or a non-condo HOA, have your listing broker obtain all of the HOA documents in advance and publish them, post them to the multiple listing service and require that the buyer and the buyer's agent review them and sign off on them before you're in contract. Because otherwise, they'll have the opportunity to use that to renegotiate or back out. And I'm going to give you a great example of that right now. So I have a buyer looking to buy a house. And we were competing with two other people. They already had an offer in hand, and they were ready to sign it. And the listing broker told me, well, I, I don't remember. Let's just say they said, we have an offer in hand for uh, 450 And my buyer said, I'll offer four, $450,500. I'll offer $2,500 more, and I'll waive my inspection. However, my buyer was an investor. He was buying the property to, to make it a rental. So he wanted to make sure, since this is an HOA, that it didn't have a rental cap that prohibited him from doing that. The listing agent didn't know. The seller who was out of town says, well, I don't want to wait to find out because what if that other buyer walks? I've got a bird in hand, and I don't want to get in a contract with a person for $2,500 more and find out they can't do it, so I'll just take the other offer. That means that that seller just handed, just flushed $2,500 on the toilet because the listing broker hadn't taken the time and energy to, dis- to figure out what if there was rental cap or not and disclose to us in it. Now, $2,500 when you're selling a $450,000 home might not seem like a lot of money, but if somebody said to me that, with an, that, that if I had taken another half hour to help my buyer figure out to save $2,500, I didn't do it. I, didn't think I, I don't think I did my job. $2,500 means something to most people. So that's an example. Uh, by the way, some people think for some reason that if, uh, if you have offers in hand, that you can't tell anybody what the offer price is. Yes, you can, as long as you have permission from the seller. There's nothing, there's no law, there's nothing. You follow your seller's instructions. In this case, he told me, okay, the house, we have two offers in hand, one of them is 450 Now, pros and cons of that. The biggest advantage of it is that then everybody bids each other up. The, down, the downside of it is that then people know exactly what you're offering, so they might just come in really close instead of bidding it up more. So you take it kind of case by case whether you want to do it. Okay, it's time to go to a break, right? Eric, we're getting to a break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about loan closing costs. It's such an exciting thing to do. I'm sure everybody is waiting with bated breath on the other end here. So you're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim. I air on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. here on 1150 KK, 1150 AM KKNW. You can call in during the show at 425-373-5527 or reach me off air at 206-250-6545. We'll be right back after these messages. Don't go away. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm-mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. 
Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger, put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Wondering what's on next on Alternative Talk 1150? Check out 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Home Talk with Greg McKim, the show that covers home ownership from soup to nuts. Each Tuesday here on 11:50 a.m. KKNW from 3 to 4. Please feel free to call in during the show at 425-373-5527. And if there's any bond traders out there that want to call up and set me right on how bond yields work, I would appreciate it because my for some reason today I'm just coming up with a, my brain dead about it. So today we've talked a little bit about what interest rates are doing in the housing market and some of my tips for shopping for a home loan and tips for buying and selling homes. So now we're going to get into some nitty-gritty, really exciting stuff. It's loan closing costs. So if you've ever obtained a home loan or maybe thought about one and seen a loan quote or something called a loan estimate, then you've seen all kinds of different costs and you've probably wondered, what are these things? And hopefully whoever you worked with explained them, but sometimes they don't or they don't explain them in much detail. So I'm going to do that for you today. Um, by the way, there used to be something called a good faith estimate. That was changed to a loan estimate. And a good faith estimate is still used for certain types of loans, second mortgages, for instance. But today, the loan estimate is has replaced it for a first mortgage. Now, if you call a lender up and ask for a quote, say, hey, I would like a quote for a rate of X. Let's just say you pick a rate of four. Remember what I say. Everybody has to quote on four because what you're comparing is what they charge you because everybody has the same rates for practical purposes. So everybody's quoting their fees for four. Some of them might give you a loan estimate, but most of them will not. And here's why. Once a lender issues a loan estimate, they are bound by this in certain for certain regulatory reasons and can't change it without what's called a legitimate change of circumstance. So they avoid doing these unless they've actually approved you for a loan or pre-approved you for a loan, pulled your credit, that sort of thing, because they're taking a risk to do it. So instead, they'll give you something along the lines of just a quote or a loan summary, and they will say specifically, it should say on it, this is not a loan estimate. That's to protect them from getting information from you that's inaccurate and then having to go backtrack on it, even though they have the right to do that. So we're going to talk about all the different categories on an estimates or a quote, and we'll start with the, the fees that the lender has control over, and these are, these are in two buckets. If you're looking or thinking about looking into this, if you're looking at a loan estimate, we have what we call loan costs. The first bucket are origination charges. This, this is the area, these are the fees the lender and or mortgage broker collects to pay their loan originators. This is the area, this is the big, biggest single cost that the lender charges 
and or collects on their behalf from you. And I use that terminology very purposefully. It's, very, it's really common for lenders and mortgage brokers to say, we don't charge a fee. Not true. They charge it. And if they say they don't, what they really mean is that they've built it into your interest rate. They've deferred your fee. And I've gone through this before in other shows, and I'll bring it up again. They all get paid. And the loan originator is the single biggest expense to a lender in the process. And the loan originators make anywhere from half percent of the loan amount to almost 1% of the loan amount. Depends upon the lender and how their, their, fee, their, their commissions are structured. But that's the cost. And there's always a cost. There's always, it's just either you pay it out of your pocket or you pay it over the duration of the loan built into the interest rate. So that's what's called the origination charges. And um, that's also the biggest area of shopping. That's where you'll find the most differential between the, 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 the least and highest expensed mortgage broker lender. So that's where you want to be shopping the most. Another category is Section B of the loan estimate called services you cannot shop for. These are things that the lender charges above and beyond the origination fee, which would include, say, the appraisal fee, a credit report fee, a flood certification fee, a tax service fee. Those are the most common. So let's go through them. I think the appraisal fee is pretty obvious. Appraisal fees have gone up a lot the last few years, which is interesting. When I got in the business back in 91, appraisers were charging two, two fifty, and they did way more work. They had to drive more. There was less data accessible on the internet. They they didn't have you know emails and and, and digital photographies and so forth. Oh, I got a call. Oh, I'm, let's take the call. Hi, Debbie. Hi, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I I have a question about getting a loan. All right. Let's see if I'm I can answer it. I'm an entrepreneur, and uh, although I have really, really, really good work history, in the last few years, I've just I've owned my own business, and I have about what I would say is is about a forty percent down payment. Okay. But like I said, I just um, I've been working for myself the last couple years, and I'm just wondering what steps I should take to possibly qualify for a loan when everyone seems so interested in my work history. Well, if you're self-employed, there are loans available for you. Of course, the lender's going to have some sort of criteria for whether or not you can pay it back. Do you have a record of income to pay it back? And I know a lot of self-employed people do everything they can to write off expenses to show as little income as they can for tax purposes. And some, yeah, I've done a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, Debbie. And some people have uneven cash flow. So like they'll have a year where they make a whole bunch of money off a big project, and the next year they don't have any. And there are, yeah. there are specific lenders out there that have, I should say, there are lenders out there that have specific loans designed for that very type of borrower. They're not your standard Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lender. Debbie, who says, let me see your pay stubs, that sort of thing. They have other, there are other ones. Um, some of them are what are called asset-based, where if you have a certain amount of liquid assets, they'll just, they'll use an extrapolation, Debbie, of how much is available and qualify you on that. Um, others will take what are called bank statements. They'll look at the actual cash flow through your bank statements and not what your net is, but the cash flow, and they'll use that for their income purposes. Now, if you are self-employed, though, Debbie, they want to document that you've had a business license for at least two years because they want to see that you've been in business for that long. Is that the case for you? Yeah. All right. So without getting in the air about all your personal details, there are loans available for that type of a situation. 
the cost of those loans is higher because those are higher risk loans to lenders. They're, okay. But they're reasonable. Like if I go back to 1991, when I was refinancing people out of rates, Debbie, of 13% into 10, and they were mm. doing backflips, you're not going to be in that range. You're going to be well below that. So re- it, historically, they're still not bad, but they are higher than when you hear advertisements for rates in, on the radio and the newspaper. They're higher than those rates because those rates that you hear advertised all the time are for people who have pay stubs and so forth. That make sense? It does. It does. Is it the sort of thing that maybe after five years of being a good uh, loanee that my rate could go down? You know, that's an interesting question. I I don't know of a lender who okay. looks at a person's history while they're with them who, who drops the rate. It, it's been brought up numerous times in my career by different parties about, you know, what what about some sort of a rate break for people who pay on time? And it's it's partly because of the nature of how loans, the money, the source for loans. If you've heard my show or listened today, the people who provide most of the money for loans, Debbie, are bond investors, and they buy a security that has a certain return on it forever, and it doesn't adjust. Now, not every lender sells their loans to the bond market. For instance, Washington Federal, they lend their money out of their own bank accounts. So let's just say they were you, want, you have a bank account at Washington Federal, pretend, and let's say that your your savings account you make two percent, just a just a you know, a number out of thin air, and then they loan the money out at four percent. They they make the spread. Now they don't they're not beholden to how Debbie the the bond investor uh, thinks, but I don't know of them actually having a program like that either that you brought up. Hey, I've I've been a good I've been a good. Can you drop my rate? I've not I've not heard of that. I'm always if somebody finds it, if there's a listener out there that knows about it, please call. I'll share, share with everybody, but I don't know where it is. Well, but, you really helped me out, though. Thank you. I, I just figured I was high and dry because I work for myself. Well, you're not. But, of course, I can't tell you for sure you can get a loan because I don't know anything about your details. If you want to call me off air, shoot me an email. Do you need those numbers right now, or did you hear them on, during the breaks? No, I wrote them down. Thank yeah, you. give me a holler, and I'll go through with you, and I'll tell you. And, and if you can't do it today, I'll say, okay, here's what we need to do to get you there. Oh, thank you. Oh, I really appreciate your call, and I'm glad I can help. Yes. Thank you very much. All right, Good Debbie. Thank you. You, th- you bet. Thanks. Bye. Well, that was great to hear from Debbie. And, and, and there are lots of different loan programs out there. Um, back during the mortgage meltdown, the, the media made a big deal out of no-income stated loans and how horrible they were for the consumer. And unfortunately, that was oversimplification. The bottom line is, is that stated loans, loans that are designed for people just like Debbie, have been around a long time. And they're perfectly appropriate for the right type of a borrower. For instance, somebody who puts down 40%, somebody who has good credit, shows that they have cash flow, but maybe doesn't qualify for your traditional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan. But then what happened is during the early 2000s, those loans started becoming abused. And they started being used for borrowers who really didn't need it, who basically just didn't earn the money. And that's one of the reasons why you had the mortgage meltdown, where the loans just became abused. And that was unfortunate because... Now, some of them have come back, which I was talking to Debbie about. There are plenty of people out, or lenders out there, I should say, who still offer different types of no-income stated loans, and so they've made a comeback, um, so they're, they're, they are available. All right, so I was talking about different services that the lender requires you, you pay for in order for them to do a loan for you. One would be their own origination fee of some kind. You're either They're going to collect it from you either up front or through the interest rate. And then the appraisal, I think everybody understands and I was mentioning before the phone call that when I got in the business, the appraisers were, you know, 
two, three hundred bucks, and they did a lot more work. Why have they gone up? Why are appraisals now six, seven, eight hundred dollars? <laughs> well, there was this after the mortgage meltdown. Um, there was some regulatory action taken, where instead of a loan originator like me contacting an appraiser directly, I have to now go through a third party called an appraisal management company, and I can't communicate with the appraiser in any way, shape, or form ostensibly because I was influencing them at one time, which is a bunch of bull, by the way. It did happen periodically, but it wasn't to the extent that the, the industry made out to be. These appraisal management companies came in, and now what they do is they randomly pick appraisers, and they add an extra cost on top of it. So the consumer's paying more, and quite frankly, I don't believe it's worth what you're paying for, but that's what it is. Um, so every lender has different appraisal management firms. They all charge something different. In this market right now, you can figure anywhere from six to 800 bucks. Uh, credit reports. Lenders charge those. Sometimes they eat them, but credit reports are something you obviously have to do, and they're going to cost anywhere from 20 to sometimes 80 bucks, depending upon, again, the lender you're working with and who they contract with. A couple that confuse people a lot, those two I just mentioned are pretty straightforward. Appraisal, credit report, okay. What's a flood certification? Well, a lender has to make sure your house isn't in a floodplain. If it is, then you're going to have to get flood insurance. So they contract with a third party that has all the maps of the world, well, the United States, and they say it is or isn't in a floodplain, and you pay for that as a consumer. Then there's another one that comes up quite often called tax service fee. What's that? Say, for instance, most lenders charge anywhere from 60 to 80 bucks for that. So the lender wants to make sure that your taxes are paid on time, your property taxes, which in the state are paid April 31, no later than in October 31, twice a year. But well, what if they don't get paid? Well, then the county, the state, come after your house. So there's a third party that keeps a, basically tabs on that and notifies the lender immediately if the taxes weren't paid in the appropriate amount or on time. Even if the lender is collecting it as part of your payment and paying the taxes for you, they still make you pay for this tax service fee because sometimes the taxes don't get applied properly because people make clerical errors. And they want to be flagged if that happened and you know chase it down to see why it happened. So um, we're at another break. Let's just take a quick break here. You're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim on 1150 AM KKNW. This is the show where we cover everything that has to do with homeownerships from A to Z. Please feel free to call during the show at 425-373-5527. We'll be right back after these informative messages. Olivia from Washington. laid off and trying to keep our little kids from realizing that mommy and daddy haven't eaten in a while. Roger, from California. I'm grateful we could afford our son's surgery. I'm nervous that now we can't really afford food. Daniel, from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Donna, from Louisiana. The storm just hit, and we went from donating to the food bank to needing it. Keisha from South Carolina. I've been skipping meals so my two kids can eat, but filling up on water doesn't really work. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. 
she could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I was sensitive to lights and sounds, so I built secret hiding places where they couldn't get in. Sometimes, I did the same things over and over, until one day, I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Get inspired every hour right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Hello and welcome back to Home Talk with Greg McKim. I am your host, Greg McKim. This is the show where we talk about everything we can that has to do with home ownership. Today I'm covering loan closing costs, having been a loan originator in the industry for 28 years, or in the industry for 28 years. So we first covered the two categories that lenders charge that you can't, these are their fixed costs, their origination and other costs to do the loan, appraisal, credit report, so forth. There are some some costs that'll show up on your loan estimate or your quote that you can shop for. Now, the first two categories we talked about, those are the only things you should compare. When you're shopping for a home loan, you'll get all kinds of quotes, and people will estimate things about title and escrow and insurance and pro interest. and pe- Don't pay attention to them. They're all estimates. The things you want to compare are the things the lender controls, which are very specific. And if you don't get what they are, make sure that you ask them what they are. And if you don't get it, call me or email me, and I'll tell you. So um, here's some things you can shop for. You can shop for the title insurance premium. There's title insurance is a insurance product just like any other insurance product. It covers a potential loss. It's, it covers risk. Um, so when you buy a home, traditionally, the seller buys a title insurance policy that covers the buyer from potential risk. What kind of risk? Well, let's just say somebody else had a legal claim to the ownership of that property that the seller either wasn't aware of or knew about and was hiding from you. The seller pays for an insurance policy that covers that if it were to occur. Now, the title insurance companies, of course, don't do this without doing research. So they research all the county records. They dug it. They say, okay, this looks like it's okay. Very seldom do I run across a title that has what we call a cloud. But sometimes you do. Sometimes there's issues about maybe somebody shows up on something that says, hey, they have ownership, and the title company chases it down. There are some very wonky funny little things about that that you can run across, but I'd say maybe one out of a hundred, if that, that I've ever run across. So the seller buys you that title policy. That protects you from somebody else having a legal claim or other types of ownership issues on the property. Now, if you're getting a home loan, the lender wants to have the same type of protection. So that's why as a home, if you're getting a home loan, you'll see a, a, a cost for you to buy title. That's you are buying it for the lender. Now, there's a, a secret 
where you don't have to buy a title insurance policy. This is a really secret not very many people are aware of, but you don't have to buy the, ins- the title insurance for a lender. And here's the secret. Buy the house cash. If you buy the house cash, there's no loan, so there's no lender. But most people don't like that little secret, so they just go ahead and pay for the title insurance policy. And that insurance policy is has to be renewed anytime you were to say refinance or get another loan because the new lender wants it. But the title policy that was purchased by the seller on your behalf is there as long as you own the house and then you buy one for a buyer when they buy your house from you. And then there's the escrow slash settlement slash closing fee. And it's called different things in different parts of the country. And that's a third party, a disinterested third party, typically called an escrow company in this state, who handles all the money and other details of the transaction to make sure it's legally binding and it goes forth as as prescribed in the contract. And they also are required. You can't you can't get a home loan without a licensed escrow company being um, approved by the lender because they're not going to wire $500,000 to me or you. So they use an escrow company. Now, the title and escrow companies, quite a few of them are, are, have their, are, are together, like First American Title. They have their own title and escrow. Uh, Commonwealth, Chicago, you name it. And then there's some companies that are totally separate. There's escrow companies that are independent. And typically, they're just maybe a legal firm or somebody who's licensed to do escrow, and they don't have any sort of relationship with a title company. There's pros and cons to all those things. And those things things you can shop for. Now, here's an interesting thing. When you're buying a home, you will find it very common for the listing agent to say, we would prefer you use First American Title. We prefer you use Commonwealth Title. By law, it's called RESPA, Real Estate Settlement Protection Act. A seller nor a listing broker can, it's against the law for them to require you to use a title company. That's because there was a time once where there were these kickbacks and things going on. So be aware of that. Now, of course, if you're making an offer on a home and you're competing with other people and you want to argue about that, good luck. I wouldn't. It's not worth it because all the title companies roughly cost the same for title. They're regulated by the state insurance commissioner. You might be a couple hundred bucks, 50 bucks here or there, but it's not worth fighting about. But just be aware that it's illegal. They can't make you do it. They can ask you to, but they can't make you do it. As far as escrow goes, they can tell you who they want to use because it's not regulated by RESPA. Um, okay, so those are some of the things you can shop for. Other things that come up, if you want to get a home inspection, of course, you can do that on your own. That's not a closing cost that's shown on a loan estimate because it's really not something that the lender requires that you do. Oh, by the way, everything I'm telling you here is something the lender's going to require in some fashion. Whether or not you can shop for it or not is a different issue. So you have to have title. You have to have an escrow company. You have to pay your taxes. You have to get homeowner's insurance. But certain things you don't have to do unless the lender requires it because of something that comes up. Let's just Here's a little tangent. So let's just say that you didn't want to get a home inspection and you waived it. But the home appraiser went out to the home and says, there's a problem here. And the lender could say, we, now we require you get an inspection. And then you would have to negotiate at that point with the seller. And the seller might say, well, get lost. I'm not doing it. But if, if, a, if a lender's appraiser finds something wrong with the home or something suspect, they can then require a home inspection separate from their own. It doesn't happen very often, by the way, but it can. So there's some other costs that come up real typical on a, on a, on a home loan are your your recording in fees. So the King County and Snohomish, whoever it be, they're going to re- charge to record all the legal documents, which is the transfer of ownership from the seller to the buyer. That's the paper trail that shows who owns homes. And that's going to cost, you know, about 200 some bucks to get that all done. And then um, now you will see on many of the loan estimates, you'll see this 
big charge for something called a transfer fee. And that transfer fee is not something that the buyer pays for in the state of Washington. But to confuse buyers, and I don't know why they do it, many lenders show it on their loan estimates because some states do it, and they, and, and they, they put it on there anyway, and then they'll tell you, well, you don't have to pay that. But just be aware that you don't pay it. In this state, think of transfer fee kind of like sales tax. Let's say in this state you buy a car, you pay sales tax. But when you buy a house, you don't. Instead, the seller pays a type of tax called an excise tax, which is roughly 2%. Okay? But you will not be paying a transfer fee or a transfer tax in the state of Washington to buy a house. So if that comes up on your loan estimate, just strike it out or ask the person why they put it there because it isn't something you got to pay. And it can, it's a lot. You buy a $500,000 house for 2%. It's left roughly 1.8, but that's that's you know that's five grand. Um, homeowners insurance premium at closing, you have to, if unless it's a condo and you know they already have it as part of the dues. But if it's a if you have to have insurance, you have to pay it up front at closing. Now you can pay your taxes and your homeowners insurance as they become due, either semi-annually or annually, provided you put at least 20 percent down on the loan. But if you choose to have or are required to have the payment include your insurance and in, in taxes, then at closing, the lender will also collect a reserve account. Sometimes it's called a res- escrow account. I don't like that term because it, it confuses it with escrow companies. And it, it is also called a reserve account. And the reserve account is set up so that down the road, they'll have enough money to pay your taxes and insurance, even if you miss a payment or if the tax and insurance go up. And there's a, there's this complicated calculation where they can't have by law too much in that reserve account or too little, and they adjust it out annually dependent upon what they disperse and what they take in. But at closing, you will have to pay into that up front a little bit. Basically, you are seeding that account, and this is something you want to go over with your loan originator because it's kind of complicated. And then you'll have to pay any property taxes that are prorated and due at closing. So, for instance, if you close any time after April 31, the seller's already paid all of the first half taxes, January through June, they're due April 31. So they paid them. Well, you live in the house May and June. You're going to have to pay the seller back. But if you bought the house in February and the seller um, is going to owe, well, let's, the seller would owe you taxes because the, the um, you clo- let's say you closed March 1, okay? And the seller hasn't paid the taxes yet, but you're going to pay them. So you, the seller owed the taxes for January and February because you closed on the house March 1, but you're going to pay them in April, which includes those two months. So the seller would owe you money. And those things are prorated by the escrow company as part of their job. Some other things that come up are, let's say you're buying into an HOA or a condo HOA, and there's some sort of a transfer fee or a move-in fee or a deposit fee or there's a dues proration. Those kind of things come up for HOAs on a regular basis. And then some, if, if, you, if you work with a lender that's not charging an upfront origination fee, they might give you a credit towards some of your closing costs. That comes from an interest rate. And again, if you go back to one of my earlier shows about how interest rates work and so forth, or if you want to call me and talk to me about it, the interest rate, the higher the interest rate, the lower the costs because the, the, the bond investor is making more money and they'll pass that along through the pipeline all the way down to you. So if you get into credit from a lender, that means you could have had a lower rate with no credit. And there's a, there's a trade-off there, which is a whole other conversation. But if you're getting credits from lenders, it's not free. It's built into your rate. There's nothing in this business that's free. It doesn't exist. Well, I think we've covered it fairly well. 
Those last parts, I'm actually kind of surprised and pleased that I was able to get through all that today. I'm disappointed that um, Mr. Greenspan and Mr. Bernanke wasn't, weren't able to make the show today, though. So I'll have to give them another call and see if they're willing to, to show up in beautiful downtown Bellevue. But I think we're about wrapped up here, aren't we, Eric? Getting close to wrap-up time or not? Yeah, we've got a, a couple minutes left, so if there's any parting thoughts you want to yeah, pass on or thoughts. if you want to see if Janet Yellen can join us. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Very we can clever. try that. Yeah, maybe just a phone call with her, right? Yeah. So if you're interested in learning more about any of these things in detail, please feel free to call me off air on my mobile. I will answer it most of the time. 206-250-6545. Or you can email me at gmckim, that's G-M-C, K-I-M at LoanZilla.com or visit our website at LoanZilla.com. And the next week I will come in prepared to talk a little bit more about how bond yields work because I muffed it up this time for you people that really want to know because I know it's a fascinating topic. I hope some of the tips I gave you today are valuable. And um, again, mortgage tips, shop early. Don't use the APR. And make sure when you ask for a quote, you ask everybody to quote for the same rate. If you're selling a home or buying a home, don't use the price per foot to evaluate the value. Remember the story about not knowing whether the HOA had a rental cap? That cost that seller $2,500. And um, also, it is permissible for the listing broker to tell buyers what the uh, price is on other offers that come in. There's pros and cons to that. But some people feel like for some reason that's not, you're not, they're not allowed to do that. You can do that. Overall, wrapping it up, if you're, in, if you're thinking about what direction are interest rates going, I'd say they're probably relatively flat, but be on the lookout. Good economic news, rates go up. Bad economic news, rates go down. That's it for today. Thank you. I don't have a guest lined up for next week, but I will be here, and I hope to have you join me. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Enjoy this un, un, unseasonably hot weather. Wear sunscreen and a hat. Again, you've been listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim. And are we wrapped up here, Eric? It's about time for, for you to hear some messages. Have a great weekend. See you.